Right, hello and welcome to the Black Belt and Thinking podcast. Today I have uh, James Powell here and we're going to be talking about implementing impossible solutions or in our language, flying pigs. Welcome to the Black Belt and Thinking podcast. I'm Peter Cronin, lead presenter of the Black Belt and Thinking. This is a podcast where we look at all things to do with thinking faster and acting more purposefully. I interview experts in their field to try and provide you with the insights to the way they think and the tools and processes they use on a day-to-day basis. If you find value in this podcast, love for you to share it with others. Right, James, welcome. Hi. Nice to have you back. Yeah, that's good to be back. <laughs> All right, so implementing possible solutions or, or flying pigs. Should we, should we start briefly... Why flying pigs? Well, the, there's a phenomenon when you're inventing new solutions to intractable realities or difficult realities. Um, so particularly the domain space of the black belt and thinking tools where you analyze a, a, a complete system and then you're looking for a breakthrough solution. And, and there's a difficulty that uh, these, the ideas that we have are too ordinary and they're not enough to produce the breakthrough. See, most breakthroughs require some sort of a breakdown first. You have to you have to smash the current reality and make it almost impossible for it to coexist with the future that you want. And that means you've got to do something radical or something challenging, something um, you know revolutionary rather than evolutionary to disrupt the reality. And the moment we do that, there are a series of problems that we have as humans with with breakthrough solutions you know we're more loss averse than gain seeking for example um you know we we look for the snake in the grass that sort of a thing so we've got all these biases against us radars warning signs going off trying to stop us from doing the, the crazy stuff so here we are we've analyzed our reality um we know it's stable and and it's a problem to us because it's very hard to unsettle it uh, we've, we've designed a future reality that we're very passionate about and we'd really like to manifest. And now we've got to go and do something crazy to disrupt it and implement a new solution. And every vibe of our being is screaming, no, 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 don't do it. You know, <laughs> don't, don't do it, don't do it. And what, what then happens is we go into this defensive mode where we start dumbing down the solution, simplifying it making it the same as things we already know or already familiar with or making it you know industry standard or what other people did is that sort of a thing and, and by the time we're done with that we're just perpetuating the current reality because we, we, we're tweaking around the fringes we are not we're not planning revolution anymore right yeah yeah so you just you come up with something amazing but then you try and you know reality scares you into making it something very mundane such that it's not even going to probably get the original effect you wanted yes and you know that's happening because you go from a state of feeling very excited about your about your designed solution to oh well, we've already tried that didn't work and you become very <laughs> deflated now obviously um you may have tried elements of it so we need some sort of a process that says how do we do something that's more radical than that and this time when we try it it does work you know how do we keep ourselves in that um that sort of uh you know flaunting with the danger space you know it's a bit, it's a bit like parachuting or bungee jumping you know like extreme sports you've got to you've got to have your head in the right space it's a bit like that yep yep all right cool 
Now you mentioned flying pigs as the, the name we have in English, but there's other names for this in other languages. And if you've got an international audience, maybe uh, you could just comment on that. Oh, yes. Okay. So, you know, they're called flying pigs because in English you say, oh, that'll happen when pigs fly. But um, yeah, presenting the courses around the world and to international audiences, uh, we've, we've learned from people that there's, there's quite a few other ones. So I've got a few here. Um, one of the most interesting I've got to say is the German one, when a horse vomits in front of the pharmacy. Uh, there's a Russian or Ukrainian one, when, when the crayfish whistles on the mountain. Uh, we've got when cows fly, when fish climb trees, when hens grow teeth, when the owl's tail blooms. So, so you get yeah. the idea. These are, these are things that will happen one day never. Um, yeah. and, and so the, the Black Belt and Thinking Toolbox includes machinery for, uh, we call it grounding the flying pig or landing the flying pig, but you, know, you might be a, it might be a technique for getting the fish out of the tree or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> well, so there's four categories. There's four categories of flying pig idea. The first category is uh, characterized by the target appearing to be sufficiently ambitious that everybody involved um, assumes that somebody else isn't going to do what they need to do. And so everybody waits for everybody else to go first. Yep. And so, so you get, it's, it's not characterized by disbelief about the objective itself, it's characterized by inaction with everybody waiting for everybody else to stick their neck out first because nobody wants to waste their time on what, what is not going to work. Yeah. Uh, so for that, well, there's a tool for that, the prerequisites analysis to, uh, to, to flush out why people are perceived, are waiting, why they perceive the target to be ambitious. The second category, we call it crash and burn, um, which I'll expand on in a minute. Third category, loop of the loop. Um, and the fourth category, we call reference environment or unknown unknowns so with the with the crashing boom that's a that's an idea that uh, looks fantastic to the person who thinks of it but the moment they share it with a wider audience in the system in the business or uh, whatever the system is um, the other other players immediately detect that that creates a threat to a system need that they are responsible for so they pull the pin immediately, like there's a needs violation problem. And uh, I, I might get into some examples of that in a minute, but I'll just distinguish between the four types. So the first crash and burn is when you table the idea, you're very excited, you start sharing it, then you get this sort of strange resistance from people, you know, and a, oh, we can't do that because, and some needs getting violated. And, um, you know, it's not violating any need that you're responsible for, so you you are pushing hard for your solution, but you just won't get any action from other people. Uh, so, as I say, I'll give some examples in a minute. Loop the loop is a situation where the magnitude of the thing you're trying to cause is so huge that um, you just don't know how to get started, but you are vaguely aware that if you were already in the desired state, it would be very easy to sustain. So. Um, it's a bit like, uh, you know, getting a, a very heavy vehicle moving. You know, it, it, it's an inertia. It's very difficult to get it moving, but once it's moving, it's very easy to keep it moving. So 
That's what we call loop the loop. And again, I'll, I'll give examples in a minute. Uh, it's very different to crash and burn. With crash and burn, you get an instantaneous pushback because of a need violation, whereas with loop the loop, you get, well, yeah, but it's, oh, it's how do we get started? It's just so big, you know, like it's, it's oh, so overwhelming. And then you go, well, yeah, but if it was already working, it'd be easy, right? Yeah, well, yeah, but how do we get it moving? And then the fourth type is the unknown unknowns, which is, you know, I'd like, I'd like to tackle this. It sort of feels like there should be an answer, but I, I don't know. And I, and, I, and I know that I don't know things. I don't know what I don't know. So I'm scared to start. I feel like I could be wasting my time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so did I miss anything, Peter? I got I got all the four. four no, things. yeah, that that that's all the all the key ones. Well, let's talk through a couple of examples that we've seen um, in industry. So that, you know, these are these are real real stories. Um, I might start with loop the loop because they're a favourite in the businesses that I work in. Yep, have a very very ambitious objective. Like let's say uh, we have content for everything. You know, if it's worth saying twice, it's worth never saying it again. Get it on video, much like recording this podcast. You know, we're creating content. Yeah. And let's say we had content for everything. That's the that's the the flying pig idea, is we don't need expertise. We'll create expert content instead. And people sort of look at that and go, well, you know, you're talking about Encyclopedia Britannica here. I mean, you know, this this is huge. Or an example from industry that people would be very aware of is Google Maps. You know, we went from MacBooks to Google Maps in two years. And right. It was a huge initiative, right? Yep. So you've got to, and then Street View, and that's even more crazy. So that's an example of a massive, you've got to start somewhere. You know, you've got to eat the elephant one bite at a time. You've got to start somewhere. So how do you get that going? So as an example with experts creating content is um, how, uh, how do we go from a, a situation where if you said, well, if I want expertise on everything that the expert ever gives guidance on, we're talking thousands of pieces of content. And to land that flying pig, um, what we said is, all right, so for a week or two, as an expert in a subject space, just make a note of what you spend most time talking about. So let's say you spend 15 hours over two weeks uh, in meetings, explaining an expert topic to people. And then you say, well, funny thing is, you know, four or five hours of it was really the same thing. And I was repeating myself, you know. Okay, so following fortnight, just make some content. So take that four or five hours, and instead of going to those meetings, tell everybody you're unavailable for two weeks and write and spend that four or five hours writing content relevant to that, or simply tape like audio tape, your next meeting and be mindful of the fact that you are taping it and then get a, you know someone to turn that into content for you. And then next time you're invited to a meeting to give your expert opinion on blah, you send the content first and then you may or may not need to show up. And then you, you just repeat the cycle. So you loop and loop and loop around it where every fortnight you're just picking two or three or four hours and you're knocking off content for the currently most uh, time-consuming subject matter. And you know, we've done that at, at, uh, at Wise Tech Global and found that you know, at first, your content libraries got one video and then it's got 10 
or, or pieces of content or documents, and then it's got a hundred, and then it's got a thousand, and then it goes exponential, you see, until eventually there's content for everyone. And you get into the habit of leading with content, you get into the habit of generating content. Now, it's been very difficult for someone to come in after the fact and look at that and go, how did you get whatever the number is? I don't know the number, but how did you get thousands of content items? I mean, that must have been a huge initiative. The assumption is that until it's finished, it's of no use. But the reality is it's paying off in the very first week. And as you said, if, if you start with the stuff you're being asked about all the time, you get kind of the biggest dividends right at the start anyway, right? Absolutely correct. And we did a very similar thing with our training programs. We turned those into consumable training programs. You've done the same with BBIT by turning it into a digital product. Yep. Uh, we've done the same with um, the, the, the sort of the A-team sales presenters. You know, why, why try to train a whole lot of salespeople when you could record your very best presenters presenting the product? and then use that as training or even in sales presentations as part of the content that you use. Um, to, to, and to get off content for a minute, another topic you could do that for would be, uh, say, defect reduction um, in, in, in terms of software defect containment. Uh, another example would be inventory reduction programs. You know, this, this whole idea that you've got to do this massive effort, just start somewhere and run a loop and then you, the idea is that the loop generates as a side effect of it running more of the thing that you need to make the loop run again. So for example, with content production, writing content frees you up to write content. Yeah. Right? So if, and, and so, um, you know, if you're trying to write or right size your inventory, if you flush out old inventory, you free up cash from which to buy the right inventory. So you, you, what you're trying to do is get the loop to generate more of the thing that the loop is trying to, to generate. And so that decreases the amount of work that you have to do. You can achieve some amazing things over time when you loop the loop. Uh, what was another one? Oh, well, let's say with the crash and burn. Let's, let's switch top. Do you have any questions about loops, Peter? Or is that good enough? For no, that no, I think, it's, I think that's a pretty good coverage of it. Okay. It, so let's talk about um, crash and burns for a minute. A cracker for that is any time your idea runs in the face of a company policy or worse, an industry standard accepted practice. Those are cases where everyone just says no almost within seconds of you tabling the idea. And the, the best example I had of that was a, a fellow in the timber industry who um, the, the, exactly the same logic actually worked in accounting, believe it or not. So you, you've got to you've got to get your you've got to not worry about the type of company here and think about the principle at stake. So the discussion was about yield. When you take a log from a forest and you put it through the saw, and your objective is to maximize the cubic meters of timber out given the cubic meters of timber in. Um, and, and in the accounting analogy, it was um, the number of accountant hours billed relative to the number of accountant hours available. When you try to maximize that as a percentage, the problem is everyone's doing the same thing. So they're all maximizing that percentage using the same ideas and technologies. And what that caused in the timber industry is a, a massive glut of the products that produce the best yield and shortages of products that do not. Right. Yeah. 
So the organisation I was working with, uh, uh, who, who, you know, the, the guy I was talking to was not at all attached to industry history and just said, well, no, I don't care about cubes out for cubes in. I care about margin out for cubes in. I mean, I go and harvest cubic metres of, you know, uh, um, a thousand cubic metres of forest, and I want to know how much margin I can get for it. And he was the sales, sales guy. So he was looking at, um, well, if I look at the, at the current high value timber dimensions at the moment, and what I find is there's an incredible shortage of certain dimensions of timber. Now, if we cut the log to match those, our yield drops, but our margin increases. This podcast is brought to you by the BBIT. If you want to improve your own thinking and problem-solving skills, visit blackboutandthinking.com to sign up now. Right. They, they went from uh, making a, a loss in 10 months of the year and a profit in two months, the, the two months that happened to have um, you know, 22 or 23 working days in them, up to, to make the other way around where they were making profits for 10 months of the year and only losing money in the month of Christmas and Easter in it. Um, so it right. And it was night and, night and day. Like they changed the yield, um, the comprehension of yield to margin per instead of cubes per. Um, took them 10 days tops to train the, the guys on the uh, automated soaring equipment to, to figure out how to slice the logs up. And just bang, instant, instantaneous profit. And the same thing happened with the way they were using the accountant time in the accounting business, strangely. So <laughs> now in both of those cases, um, the reason that's a crash and burn is real simple. I've told that story to probably seven other timber mills and every one of them, well, and in fact, other accounting firms, and they all stare at me and go, but you have to maximize yield because that determines your profit. <laughs> yeah, right. So well, no, no, it actually doesn't. Margin determines your profit, but you know, as long as you're fixated on, it's not that in principle yield is a bad thing. The problem is that the, the cuts in order to maximize yield, everybody's doing the same thing, and that crashes the price of those of those dimensions of cross section of, of plank. So um, yeah, it's it's an interesting crash and burns is where you, you are going up against a company policy or a, or just a thing that everybody takes for granted and is not willing to challenge uh, so that's an example of crash and burn. And that, those are extreme I mean that's an industry-wide one I mean you can have much smaller ones than that like it might be that there's a policy to minimize freight cost and as right. a result I mean I had, I had a guy tell me once that in order to save hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year in freight they were spending $3 million a year in inventory holding costs. Yeah, what. right. <laughs> and I said, well, what, what, why don't you flip it around and spend 150000 on freight and save on the holding costs? He said, well, because I'm responsible for the inventory, but someone else is responsible for the freight. And if I was to do that, um, that person you know, has more clout in the organisation than me because we're largely a distribution company and I'd get fired. Yeah. I was like, well, okay, that's a crashing bird. You know, like you've literally got the numbers. So people look at it and go, yeah, but there must be a way of doing it without pushing the freight up. You go, no, if you push the freight up, holding costs will go down. That's how it works. But, but for years and years and years and years, that company had measured its people on minimizing the freight cost in the product. Not, they didn't even include the holding costs in the product. That was viewed as like an overhead. Right. So, yeah. so, so you've got to measure which brings me back to measurement. The purpose of a measure is to change behaviour. So in that timber company, the, um, 
like they, the, the, the uh, sales manager phoned me about six months later and said, look, can you come visit the site? Because I'm having some real problems now that the, the variance reports are coming out and they're showing all these negative variances. Uh, and, and they're showing that the yield is dropping and the margins dropping. They said, but I, you know, I'm backing up the money truck because I mean, I can't, I just, we got so much money in the bank accounts it's obscene. <laughs> so I went down and had a look and I spoke with all the managers and, you know, in the end I said, take them all off the reports. The purpose of the reports to change behaviour and the reports teaching you to do the wrong behaviour. Just take it all off. Easy enough. <laughs> well, easy enough at that point. So, so anything, so anything that sounds like a, a sacred cow or a, oh, we just do things like that around here or anything like that is, is likely to, to fall into this, is it? Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, there's a, I think there's a Dilbert comment about that, isn't there? That, that you know, this, this wonder product will never work because it comes out of my budget, but the profit goes into someone else's or something like that. Yes, exactly. That's all, yeah, that, that's, a big, that's the sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So that's um, ambitious targets. We've talked briefly about crash and burn, a few examples there, and loop the loop, a few examples there. The unknown unknowns is, is another interesting one. Um, the secret there is to, that the most most things are not uniquely unsolvable. They just haven't been solved by you or by your industry. Yep. And um, what can you then do? Well, you can go outside your industry and look for examples from somewhere else. And this happens a lot where you have a discovery or a breakthrough. Uh, and in fact, you know, I mean, um, that, that debate, the recent that thinking fast and slow book, you know, Kahneman and Tversky, and they got a Nobel Prize for the for, for behavioral economics because they took an element of psychology that nobody, that the economists didn't know about in the area of economics that the psychologists didn't know about and said, oh, these two should talk to each other. And then suddenly there were solutions coming out, you know, like nudge, uh, that were coming out of this sort of cross industry pollination. There's yep. a lot of stories like that that are quite famous. So the idea of the reference environment is you seek to engineer exactly that. So you're looking for, here's a thing that's, that sounds impossible, and yet there are other industries that seem to pull it off. And how do we get um, access to what they went through in order to do that? Uh, so, so you've got, in fact, you could tell that story about the Formula One. Okay, you're a bit more fluent with that than I am. So talk about oh, that. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. Um, so this was, oh, I forget how long ago it was now, because I've been telling this for years now, and so I always forget how long ago it was, but you, you can you can look it up if you're interested. Um, Southwest Airlines, um, you know, they do everything to, to cut down on on, the, uh, on their costs so that they can keep ticket price low. You know, they, they shuffle people on and off like a bus. They... Um, they only have they only fly the same model of aircraft so that every pilot and every mechanic and every machine and everything is rated or or ready for that that one type of aircraft and all its equipment and everything like that. So um, they had all of this all sorted. Um, no seven three sevens, I think it's eight hundreds, but I'm not not one hundred percent sure on that. But anyway, um, one of the things that they couldn't quite crack was getting down their their turnaround times on the aircraft. So it lands. And the time between it, you know, landing, pulling up to the gate and pushing back from the gate is time that it's, the longer it's there, the, the less time it has in the air and therefore the less, less money they can make off it. Um, and I think this is, this is fascinating um, 
sort of extreme real example of this uh, going going out of industry is they were apparently absolutely stuck on this. I think they actually called in a consulting firm um, to help them with this, and they're the ones that that sort of broached this. But well, I mean, where where in the world um, do you find the the sort of fastest possible turnaround of vehicles of any vehicle as fast as possible? Formula One, right? The the, yeah. the pit stops in Formula One are down to to seconds. Um, and so that's exactly what they did. They worked with the uh, the Williams Formula One team, which sounds embarrassing right now for anyone who follows Formula One these days. But back then, it wasn't so embarrassing. <laughs> um, so Williams was a better team back, back in the day. Anyway, um, they worked with the Williams Formula One team and they had their engineers and their pit crews and everything come out and see everything that the the uh, southwest guys were doing to turn turn an aircraft around and and help them work on it to to get the time down and again i'm stretching to remember the numbers but i'm thinking it went it was pretty extreme it might have gone from something like 40 minutes average or 38 or something around there down to about 12 on the average turnaround time of uh of an aircraft so <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty big jump and it's a it's a pretty interesting example of going totally out of industry, but finding the absolute extreme experts in the world on, on one niche and uh, getting them to, to help out. Yeah, so the, the getting an expertise from out of industry involved. Um, another example of that that, that we, you know, that I know about because of, I know the people involved specifically was the uh, the problem of the developers, software developers, using what they call anti-patterns in the code. So there are there are set ways that people stumble into and learn the habit of for solving particular types of coding engineering problems. And there are also uh, habits that people get into in terms of um, naming conventions for variables and these sorts of things. And the requirements of the organisation were that that people not do that, but instead they use the correct patterns or they use the correct conventions. And this is proven to save a lot of time, particularly later if you're hunting for a bug. You know, the, the, the bug hunter wants to expect particular configurations of language and code style. And also from a performance standpoint too, like the engineering, the, the people involved in um, specifying for the amount of hardware it takes to get to get the system running for tens of thousands of users, you want, or hundreds of thousands of users, you want very, very efficient code. So the spotting these anti-patterns is something that, um, that team leaders are told to do. Sorry, and just can I interrupt for a second, just for people who aren't yeah. in code, um, you've got a great example, because I, I watched you do it probably 10 years ago or something, um, where one of these patterns was where the developer had coded something and you were testing it. Do you remember the date field? Yeah, yeah that, that, that's it. <laughs> Dates, of course, around the world, you know, whether it's day, month, year, or month, day, year, um, versus, you know, always assuming the date will be a four-digit year, dash, a three-character month name, dash, a two-digit. But if you if you compel everybody to always use that date format, then you're never going to have a date interpretation problem. So you, all it takes is one developer to say, to, or just to not, it doesn't even occur to them, you know, they just... They just do what they always do, which is to use a, a six-digit character, six-digit code, or something like that for date, or um, you know, and not or a formatting string. I mean, obviously dates are stored as dates, but when they're formatted onto the screen, 
um, and then interpreted perhaps if they're written out to a file and then read back in, they can be read in incorrectly. So yeah, these sorts of things, um, they're bane of your existence if you're a reviewer because the, the developer's got the code that's working, it's passed all the tests, and then you're going to sit there and complain about the style of the code. So anyway, the, um, the company architect was, a uh, software architect, chief architect was musing over the idea that there would be uh, some way of automating that. You know, how do we automatically catch and detect? And it took a, um, you know, this was a flying pig. So and he disappeared uh, around the back of a whiteboard for, for some time. And, and he had one of those eureka moments, you know, I've solved it. Um, and where in the world is there software that reads um, text or, or uh, you know, characters or computer code and, uh, and looks for patterns and it suddenly registered to him that outside of the industry, you know, but, uh, antivirus software does exactly that. It looks for patterns and sequences of characters and then attributes meaning to those. And if it gets enough hints, it says, hey, there's something dodgy happening here. So they, um, you know, that was, a, that was a reference environment or an unknown unknowns. We have no idea how to automate what a team leader does in this regard to suddenly, well, hang on, the antivirus industry knows how to do that. Now we should talk to them. And they implemented it. Now, this was a long time ago, and at least five years before I heard of anybody else doing it. So that's a huge jump ahead in the market. And now I think it's not uncommon for the um, interactive development environments and various other things to, um, to post-process or to process on the fly code, looking for anti-patterns and looking for conventions. But back then, this was just not the done thing. So this was a huge, huge competitive advantage for, for the organization to transform um, antivirus pattern detection code to be a, a software development anti-pattern detection code. Yeah, that was so that's a, an example of a reference environment. It's quite um, interesting because now, yeah, there are, as you just said, there are companies that actually just offer that as that is their product. Um, but I remember back then they, they, they just weren't. And so they had to, to implement this, I think that, I think you went out and got um, this. The actual you talked to a software, uh, an antivirus software company, and got their source code. And, I think uh, so. I'm not 100 sure, but I remember actually at a black belt and thinking workshop we were running in person, and um, I mentioned that story as part of the flying pigs class. And one of the one of the guys in the room was actually a developer at the company, and said, "Oh yeah, that thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's merciless. That thing." <laughs> If you even, if you go off piece at all, you know, that, that um, code check is going to get you. Uh, and, and it will actually reject your check-in. Like, it won't let you check in crappy code. So, that, I mean, that's just huge. To, to, yeah. to, expect, to expect a human to do that when you could automate it. Much, much better to automate it. But at the time, flying pig, no one had ever heard of such a thing. Yeah. So, here we go. Mm. So, that's it. Those are the four types of flying pig and some examples of them and the fact that if we come back to just bring it all back to the beginning, is, is that these are game changers. They completely altered it. They really shock the reality into a new reality. And if, you, if, you, um, if you don't do it, you end up with a watered-down ordinary solution. And if you do do it, it's um, game over for, 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 for players from competitive. You want to shock the competition into wondering how on earth you, you pulled that off. <laughs> and maybe that when they discover it, they go, oh, oh that's obvious. 
But then, you know, what you also need then is a way of disguising the flying pig, so it takes them a lot longer to figure out what you've done than, <laughs> especially if they're copyable. But a lot yeah. of the time, these things aren't copyable. If somebody looks at an, an, a mountain of thousands of pieces of content, you know, they just they just give up because it, it looks so big. You know, who, competing with Google Maps takes somebody the size of you know Microsoft, like nobody else has, has a decent shot at it, or Apple, you know, like. Um, but you've got to start somewhere, and that's the point. Flying pigs. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I like to leave people with um, you know, something something they can do. So I might just quickly rattle off um, a tip for each one on, on what to actually look at, just to sort of summarize. Mm -hmm. I think you said it as we went, but uh, feel free to chime in as I go. Mm -hmm. um, so the first one we're looking at there, uh, where where it's hard to just get people to, to even consider it. Um, essentially, you want to look at it from their perspective, right? If if you've got a if you've got a crash and burn got to crash and burn and there's somebody else on the other side of it before you take it to them before you try and approach the subject with them try and consider from their side the people you're talking to is there anything that's going to be a deal breaker for them an absolute showstopper and just take some time work work with other people from perhaps your side of the problem and consider well how can we how can we either communicate this more effectively to them rather than sort of shove it in their face or potentially how can we minimize minimize the negative effect on them um, so that you're at least going there with it considered um, before you talk to them and sort of drop it on them. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, number two, we've got the loop the loop. So as as, uh, as you explained there, basically you're looking for a Kickstarter, right? Something that can kick it off. As you said, if, if it was already going, it would be easy. So if it was already going now, what could we have done to kick that off? Almost imagine that it's already fixed and say, all right, well, what 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 could start that? Um, exactly. So if I had a lot of content and instead of going to that meeting, I'd send some content. So next time, instead of going to the meeting, I'll write and send some content. So you're just looking <laughs> for a, you're looking for a Kickstarter. That's right. Yeah. Perfect. And then yeah, the last one, it's just you don't know where to start. So just probably google you just google the issue and try and try and find an industry and all you're really looking for there assuming you don't have the budget like southwest to go and employ an entire f1 team to help you is you're just looking for all right so they don't have my problem and surely you're going to look at that other industry that other company and say oh well you know it's not as easy as just chucking in what they've got but now you've got actually something tangible to list the reasons why not what are the obstacles to doing it what are the negative side effects and so on and so forth and then work your way through those in a plan to, to transform it into something relevant to your industry or, or your business yes and it, it, it's about um asking yourself who, who who doesn't have that problem so for example stock obsolescence you know if you if you're constantly finding that every couple of years you've got to clean out a whole lot of stock with dust on it you go well who doesn't really have that problem you know, well the fast moving consumer goods industry anybody with, with with products with a shelf life you know they've solved that problem long ago because for them it's the difference between being in business and not being in business so right. if you haven't solved it you're out of business so ask yourself who probably doesn't have the problem and then go find out how they do it now, you can't afford a 10-year journey like they may have gone through. But the point is, they're already there. So they can give you all the answers. Yep. Yep. So you ask yourself, who, who probably doesn't have that problem? And then talk to them. Cool. All right. Yeah. That was a really good episode. Very good. Thanks, Thanks for joining us and uh, installing your wisdom. You're very welcome.
Cheers. All right. I'm Thank sure you. we'll have you back. <laughs> Thanks, James. Okay, bye. <laughs>